0: Well, friends, welcome back to the podcast. It is a great joy for us to have conversations that we bring to you on anything about the intersection of the spiritual and the practical, about how you can live and lead right side up in an upside down world. Friends, it is a challenge to lead well today. At State 4th, we call our coaches and even our experienced curators mountain guides for the leadership journey. Many leaders have invited us into this journey. We love coming alongside and coaching leaders in their leadership to be able to clarify what is overwhelming, what is hard, what is challenging, where do you feel stuck, and how do you go to the next level in your leadership? We want to be on the journey with you. We also love going away and hosting experiences where you can get out of your email inbox, get out of the challenges, the whirlwind, the expectations that you feel each day. Whether you are a stay at home dad, a CEO, a music artist, a collaborator of beautiful transformation in the world, a nonprofit leader, you name it. If you have influence, we want to come alongside of you in your journey to be a kingdom leader that lives and leads out of your unique design. You don't have to burn out, flame out, have a moral failure, or live at the risk of your own soul if you are living and leading. Friends, we want to be in the trenches with you. We want to go deeper than these conversations. We've got a couple opportunities for you. The first is our Right Side Up community over on Facebook. We're having great conversations break out there about health and impact. The second is called Tuesday Tune Up. It's also free. It'll take about five minutes to read through and it's one practical leadership tweak you can make each week. Friends, this is really good stuff. A lot of this we're getting from our coaching conversations conversations that we're having as a team that we just want to share with you. Friends, your leadership matters too much. If you steward that well, many others around you can grow to their capacity. If you don't steward that well, we see the issues that come up with that, and it can be so dangerous. We just want to remind you, your life and leadership matter too much to lead alone. Don't lead in isolation. We're going to continue to have conversations about health and leadership here, about longevity, sustainability how to live and lead well and with excellence and lead for the long haul. But these conversations alone are not enough. Join the Right Side Up community where you can uh, get to know other leaders each week. Be working on your leadership through Tuesday TuneUp. You can go to TuesdayTuneUp.com or find info in the show notes. You can head over to the Right Side Up community on Facebook or find the link in the show notes. Your leadership matters too much. Don't lead isolated, we are with you for the journey. Friends, it's a great privilege to have these conversations with you. We don't take these lightly. We'll continue to drop these episodes each Tuesday and Thursday. And now, on to the podcast. Welcome to the podcast, Tim.
1: Thank you very much. It's great to be with you, Alan.
0: Yeah, it seems like we're we're cut from such similar cloth in terms of what you're doing at Growing Leaders and just even you personally been in the trenches with leaders now for a long time. Uh, but take me back, take me back to that moment where you realized, I want to make leaders better.
1: Ah, uh, Yeah, well, it was an evolution for me, probably much like you. Um, I began my career actually in 1979, so over 40 years ago. And uh, saw the, you know, the late baby boomers come through, then the Xers and the millennials and now Gen Z. But um, in 1983, Alan, I joined the staff with John Maxwell. And so I had the undeserved privilege of being under a very strong, clear leader. Uh, felt like I didn't have to unlearn a lot of bad habits, you know, from that because just John just seemed to know what to do. Uh, but but all the while, develop my own style. I'm not, you know, John Maxwell Jr. He's he's his own person. Uh, but I think right around 1990, I began to see that leadership matters and it matters disproportionately. It's huge when we learn how to lead in a healthy way. But I knew at that point I wanted to focus my attention on, on helping leaders do it better and do it healthier. Uh, in fact, here's the, here's the epiphany I had. At first, I was working with young people. I think most of the time in our careers, we were young, so we only had influence with young people. But I wanted to focus on the emerging generation, but not just help them graduate from school and stay out of trouble and not get pregnant, you know, that sort of thing. I wanted to help them flourish. And I felt like if I helped them think and act like a life-giving leader, that would not only help them advance or expand their influence, but just be healthier as people anyway. So probably like you, Alan, I think leadership has less to do with a position and more to do with a disposition. It's a way of looking at life. And so um, that's kind of been my journey. And starting Growing Leaders in 2003, we've really been about helping the emerging generation get this when they're young rather than when they're in midlife and they've already made three or four mistakes and now they're trying
0: to climb out of a hole. Well, here's a small question for you: Developing leaders in 30 years, what's changed? Oh gosh, well, part of the paradoxes book
1: that we're going to talk about is it's definitely gotten more complex. In fact, um, I was just in a green room before a conference, and I was with 16 other CEOs, and I decided to turn it into an instant focus group. So, so I threw out the question to all these men and women: I said, "Do you think leading today is?" harder than it was when you first learned to lead in other words when you first became a leader every one of them to the person said absolutely one of them said 110 so there was no back of doubt and i said well that's kind of odd that you'd all think that way because wouldn't you think it'd be harder you know back 20 years ago or 30 years ago when we first learned to lead and we didn't know much but everybody stuck to their guns and i think um my my thinking today is People just expect more from a leader. We feel like the stakes are high. There's yeah. armchair quarterbacks everywhere f- digging up stuff on us on social media and then tweeting it out or whatever. Maybe I'm overspeaking, but I think we feel that crunch more than we've ever felt to get it right, and I think that pressure has just been hard for for leaders,
0: particularly in this post covid nineteen day that we're in and what hasn't changed in thirty years? What's remained the same about leadership in that crucial space that we hold. You know, this may be cliche. Uh, please forgive me if it
1: sounds cliche, but I think there's a handful of timeless virtues and values that just never go away. I was saying to a team member the other day, I will always hire an honest employee over a dishonest one every yeah. day. yeah. Whether it's 2021, 2041, 2061, I'm always going to, yeah. you know, and so, and you and I both believe there are timeless principles there are timeless truths that we've embraced. I think those don't go away and they always work regardless of our context, regardless of the technology that's just been introduced on how we're delivering our product or whatever. So um, that would be what, that
0: would be my answer to that, to that question. Sure. Yeah. You do a lot. I mean, you help leaders in different spaces uh, from green rooms to one-on-one conversations that you're privy to in in leaders lives. You do a lot, but I'm curious, is there one thing that's at the heart is it the core of everything you do to help leaders? Guys, that's a great question. Uh, probably the
1: right answer is yes, and it would be about self-leadership. Um, you know, one of the things that's kind of differentiated us over the years is teaching through images. So our far and away, our most popular resource is called Habitudes. Habitudes are images that form leadership habits and attitudes. So uh, there's a couple of them in the very first course. One of them is the iceberg, and you see this picture of an iceberg where you see the tip of the top and then that massive amount below the waterline. Um, and we just say, this represents your leadership. 10% above the waterline represents your skills. You can see them. But the 90% below the surface represents your character. And it's always what's beneath the surface that sinks the ship. Um, that's just huge. And by the way, you'll love this, Alan, because I think I've gotten to know you just a little bit. Uh, and The second one in that course is called The Starving Baker.
0: There you and The go. Starving
1: Baker is the baker that spends so much time baking bread for others, they forget to eat and they starve themselves. Mm, Isn't that good. the number one occupational hazard of leadership? Is yeah. We're starving bakers. So anyway, that's I would say self-leadership would be
0: probably the right answer on that one for, for what is behind everything I do. Oh, uh, that's good. Well, Eight Paradoxes of Great Leadership is your book, Wish we had time to focus on all those today, but there are four that I thought really rise to the surface for our audience and those we interact with, those we coach at Stay Forth. Talk about this paradox, high standards and gracious forgiveness. Mm. That
1: was the one, Alan, that my team said, let's talk about that the longest because I think they felt like, yeah, both are right. So um, let me give you the Reader's Digest version, or at least your listeners, a quick skinny on this one. When I look at uncommon leaders, the ones I really respect, the ones that we all look at and go, oh, my gosh, you're a market leader. You're a leader in your industry. They have high standards. In fact, they are so far and above, you know, where you think most people would be in that place, you'd go, I don't know if we can reach that. I don't know if that's humanly possible. So I think of, you know, companies like Apple or Amazon or Google or, you know, Zappos or something like that. But I find these uncommon leaders raise the bar for people. They're high standards. But coming in right behind that, they know this standard is so high, humans won't be able to meet it all the time. So we have to offer gracious forgiveness. So think about this, Alan. If I only have high standards without gracious forgiveness, people won't take risks. They'll go, there's no way I'm going to get fired if I try that. So they won't become a risk taker. If we only offer gracious forgiveness and not the high standard, you get mediocre effort from the team. You know, like, ah, you'll forgive me. I can come in at five on that one. So I really believe just uncommon leaders uh, offer both. So I have a case study on every one of these eight paradoxes. My case study on this one was none other than Harriet Tubman right out of the Civil War. So you remember her story, the Underground Railroad. She led hundreds of slaves uh, to freedom. Uh, from slavery. But she had this, she'd do this little speech to the group and say, here's the deal. Here's what we're doing. You know and I mean? It was like, man, she is raising the bar. Along the way, you can imagine some of these escaping slaves would get really antsy and even anxious and scared and want to want to throw in the towel and give up. And she would, I know this is not politically correct, but she would hold a gun to their head and say, wow. You're not leaving at this point. There's no way you're turning back because you'll get all of us killed, you know? And they'd go, okay, 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 I'm I'm with you. And then she'd just sit down with them and just pray over them and offer a gracious forgiveness and, and then they'd move on. So um anyway, that's that's that one. I think it's huge. And I think we often err on one side or the other. We're not as good at setting the bar high or we're not as good at forgiving. And I
0: think when we can blend the two, it's just, it's just powerful. One that I have talked to, I bet every single one of my coaching clients about without exaggeration, is this tension or this paradox of visibility and invisibility. Yeah. Like so yeah. timely right now. Talk about that one.
1: Yeah. Well, the truth in a nutshell here is whenever you start something your people your followers your people that you influence will need you to to model the way you got you got to be visible you got to set the pace set the example we all know that in fact we all know it we don't all do it but we all know it so um we got to set the example but there is a time in the in the continuum of our leadership with the team that we need to step back not step up and say If I'm in the room, they'll defer to me. I need to be absent. I need to be invisible. So my case study on this one, oh, it was so much fun to study, was the career of Dr. Martin Luther King. By the late 50s, early 60s, he clearly had stepped into the role. Everybody realized he's our leader. Here's our civil rights leader. So he led marches. He led boycotts. he he, He got himself thrown into prison and jail on purpose to model sacrifice. And, you know, we're going to pay the price. By the time he made that great speech in August of 63, I have a dream. In the aftermath of that, he began to not attend certain meetings. And it wasn't because he was disinterested at this point. He just knew that young John Lewis or Ralph Abernathy, you know, wouldn't, wouldn't, their voice wouldn't be heard. They'd defer to him, you know, that sort of thing. And so he would say and on the phone, John, you're there. You know what to do. I'm not coming today. Um, now, he'd meet with the president. He'd meet with President Kennedy and President Johnson because that was stuff he could only, only he could do. But he realized at certain points, and he knew how to read the moment when he would need to step back, and he would train better by not being there. So sometimes we train by our presence, and sometimes we train by our absence.
0: So, yeah. That's good. It's <laughs> interesting. It's interesting. We we've seen a an onslaught of sabbaticals. Some of them proactive, yeah. a lot of them reactive. I do sabbatical coaching, and um, that's one of the beautiful things. If done well, that other leaders step up. Um, the second one is founders who are stepping into that next season of leadership. We're a collaborative organization, so this is the moment, Tim, where I'm trying to get a couple minutes of free consulting from you without (laughs) having to to pay your regular rates. So, you know, I'm a founder a couple years in, started Stay Forth out of my own desire and heart to help leaders, and it's grown, and we have more coaches. A couple years in, as we're maturing, Tim, what's some advice you've got for me and even for the rest of our team as we want to see not just Alan's thing, but stay forth and truly impacting people as I get out of the way. Oh, wow. That's a
1: great, that's obviously a loaded question. And one that deserves more than a couple of minutes. You know, when I look back on my journey, growing leaders started in 2003 and really the birthing part, the gestation period was 2001, 2002. Um, I think for me, my answer to that question would be really around scaling. How do you take what you have been given, this vision, this passion, and these gifts and, and scale it? And it sounds like you're doing that to a certain degree with the team of, of coaches you have. I think my my what th- the thoughts that come to my mind are, I do my best leadership when I think long-term, when I think high road, and when I think big picture. Mm, and let me good. apply those to your question. Uh, We always make great decisions for the moment when we think short term because the money may be better now if I do this this weekend or that on Thursday, but long term is always better, better, uh, you know, a a better decision. Um, Someone once told me the further out I can see into the future, the better the decision I make today. So I need to think long view, you know, take the long view and not always the easy or quick answer or money answer right now. Um, high road, you know what that means. You probably teach that better than I do. High road is just, I got to make sure that as I interact with people and start suspecting the worst, I need to take the high road with them and believe the best uh, for my own mental health and emotional health. But high road is just something I I picked up from John Maxwell years ago. And I, I just think it's right. There's been a few relationships over this last year. We had a tumultuous lure, like many, many organizations did that high roads saved me. It absolutely saved me as I interface with people. And then the last one, think big picture. I think it's always easy, particularly for certain temperaments, just to see what's in front of me now. And it's my department or my area, or if if they're faith-based, my ministry. And I really think we need to act in light of the big picture. It's, it's just, once again, that's saved me over the years too. I could illustrate time and time and time again. How about how seeing the big picture save me from making a mistake or or you know diminishing what could be done because i only saw you know what was in front of me so that would be what i would say uh, there um, real quick on
0: this yeah thing. that's great hey you can send me the bill later i, I appreciate that and <laughs> i think it's you know we working on the ministry the organization the business instead of just in it you know yeah. allows that kind of scope um 10 years from now versus 10 minutes from now or even 10 months yeah. from now and one of the challenges that a lot of uh, coaching clients have is how do we play the short game and the long game at the same time, right? We got to fill up the bank account. Uh-huh. We got to add to the team, make that next yep. hire. We also need to protect our values and have that long-term vision. Yeah. So I, you know, kind of working on our putting game and driving game at the same time. Yeah, that's, that's hard. Right. We that's can't good. give the full attention to, to either one. But what I love about this book is that you're saying you live in the paradoxes. You don't solve it. It's this tension. Yeah. Um, yes. And so I appreciate that. I feel like it takes pressure off for you to just say you don't yeah. graduate from this stuff. And yes, um and it is absolutely. paradoxical even as you say it. And so the next one we got to talk about stubborn and open-minded. How do we how do we stay yeah. both of those? <laughs> well, you're absolutely right. It's a tension to manage, not a problem to solve.
1: And and I also believe it's really in many ways timing in the moment uh, what 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 needs to be done now for the team. So stubborn and open-minded definitely seems like an oxymoronic, you know, situation. That's why it's a paradox. Um, the reason those two need to go together is because I think any productive, fruitful leader would say, "We got to our goal because we had a bunch of people that were stubborn about, you know, getting there." So I think we all realize you got to be stubborn about certain things. But in today's tumultuous, ever-changing, rapidly changing world. We all know you better be adaptable. You better have an open mind to a new way to get into that goal. So my case I do a case study on each one of these, like I said. My case study on this one was Truett Cathy, the founder of Chick-fil-A. You know, he passed away six, seven years ago. But Truett was described that way by, I just interviewed several executives, plus his son, Dan Cathy. And uh, each one of these men and women would say he... He had a core that he was stubborn about. And his core was the values he embraced and the people that worked at Chick-fil-A. He would go to bat for them, even if others said, you need to let him go. He, just, he was just stubborn about them. But he was adaptable and open-minded on almost everything else. In fact, Alan, I don't know if you know this, 92 years old, he's 92 years old at the time, he starts a new restaurant that's not Chick-fil-A. It was called Truett's Luau. And it was a lion. Really? Yeah. And he picked out the design and the menu and the colors. And I'm thinking, man, I, in 92, I just hope I'm breathing, you know? <laughs> but so open minded at that point. So he was a, cl- his story is a clinic. Now, let me tell you one more quick story about him that illustrates the stubbornness. Remember how I mentioned just a minute ago, he was stubborn about his people. He would always make himself available to his people. Um, in fact, if you visited Chick fil A headquarters and said, I'd like to meet Truett. I've never met him. Someone would go up to his office. And even if he was in a major meeting, he'd say, excuse me, just a minute. And he'd come downstairs and meet you. It's, I mean, it's just, wow. who does that, you know? But um, early in Truett's career, he was managing one restaurant, the Dwarf House, the original restaurant he he came up with and Charlie worked for him. Charlie was the night manager and Charlie was an alcoholic. Everybody kind of suspected maybe, but he kind of came in somewhat sober for the shift, you know. But Truett one night heard noise up on the roof, and he asked his son Dan, who was a teenager at the time, he said, Dan, would you you go up on the roof? I hear noises up there. Well, Dan climbed up a ladder and got on top of the roof and saw a whole bunch of beer cans up there. Charlie would go outside, drink a six pack and just throw the beer cans up on the roof thinking, you know, nobody would find him. Well, Dan told me, he said, Tim, as I climbed down that ladder, I just thought to myself, well, there goes Charlie, you know, he's out now, you know, and Dan said, I watched my dad go into Charlie and say, Charlie, let's go to AA together. Let's do this. And he, Truett walked him through, kept him on and walked him through until, until Charlie was sober and Charlie finished his career there. And, you know, managing the night shift, but I thought, what a leader who was so open to the dynamic changes of the 20th and 21st centuries, but yet just stubborn as a, as a mule Mm. on my people, my people, my people. I, I, uh, I get choked up, but I think that's the kind of leader I want to be,
0: you know? Yeah, we need, we need more of those leaders fighting for people. Yes. Amidst cancel culture, amidst, I could say one thing. Or do one thing um, that gets me uh, canceled, fired, moved on, you know, whatever that is. It's a beautiful story. And we we talk about, you know, the open hand, the closed hand. There's all kinds of analogies for it. But we talk about what must we return to and what must we reinvent. And Mm, I just know in the midst of the chaos, that was, we lost a lot at Stay Forth. And, you know, probably like most other companies and organizations, And we had to return to our values and say, do we, do we really believe these? We really didn't need our values when things were going great. And then suddenly do we really need these? Yeah. We clung to them and what do we need to reinvent? And it was like most of what we do, we had to reinvent. And yet we had to stay stubborn on a few, uh, a few core things. I think that's really good and really needed right now because all this talk of resilience, adaptability, open-mindedness, yes, but I'm worried that we're going to throw babies out with bathwater in the meantime. No, no doubt about it. You, um,
1: in fact, the very last paradox is you got to be timely and timeless. And you just mentioned there's some timeless things we dare not let go of as we run into the future. Absolutely.
0: Talk about this last one, confidence and humility. Man, Mm. how do we live in that paradox, Tim? Yeah, that's the one I'm working on right
1: now in my life. And by the way, I'm so glad you said what you did earlier. It really is a tension. It's We live in an either or world. It's either black or white. And you and I both know, there's so many gray areas. Yeah. So confidence and humility. Um, Well, first of all, let me summarize it by saying, I think leaders and teams rarely get anywhere without some confidence. We rarely reach a goal unless that leader is pretty confident and, and displays that confidence. People need confidence in their leader. At the same time, if we're only confident like on the borderline of cocky and arrogant, people go, what what are you smoking? You know, mm-hmm. I mean, you, this, yeah. you can't be that good. You, you don't know everything, you know, that yeah. sort of thing. That's where they need to see humility. So I believe confidence makes our leadership believable, but humility makes our confidence believable. It, it communicates we're human and we're authentic and we realize we can't do this alone and we need help and counsel. So Bob Iger was my case study on that one. I believe he was such a great example as he took over Disney Enterprises, you know. He had never led a massive company like that that sold theme park tickets and animated movies and plush toys and clothes and hotels and everything. And so he said, I went in there admitting I had to listen to the team that I was leading. And without apology, I got to, you know, I got to learn this thing. But then he said, "I next minute, I got to turn around and say, here's what we need to do. So he was just a beautiful, vivid picture of this. And one detailed moment of that in his life, his predecessor at Disney was Michael Eisner. We all remember that name. Michael had gotten a little cocky and arrogant, not a little, a lot, like the board kicked him out. Michael had been talking to Steve Jobs about purchasing Pixar. And when Steve Jobs and Michael Eisner got together, it was in all due respect to, both. It was just two egos butting heads against each other. So Bob Iger comes in, lets some dust settle and lets some time pass. But he calls up Steve Jobs and re enters the conversation. And he says, Steve, you don't know me. I, I, I'm, you know, I'm, my, my name's Bob, you know, just, just very humble. And he says, Steve, I got to tell you, it's an undeserved privilege for me to be leading Disney. And you have got so, you are just a smart individual and you got Pixar. He said, I just can't help but think we'd be better together. And Steve Jobs said, well, that's not a crazy idea. And they enter into conversations. And sure enough, Disney purchases Pixar. And then get this, Bob Iger at Disney puts Pixar in charge of all the Disney animations. So the buyer picked up the company, and then put yeah. them in charge. It's like, that's confidence and humility right there. Mm-hmm. But that's so oxymoronic. But that's the kind of leadership I think Leaders have to display today.
0: I just yeah. do. Yeah, that's good. Um, man, so much we could talk about here, Tim, but I actually want to camp on younger leaders and older leaders. You work with a lot of emerging next generation leaders, yeah. and probably for the sake of simplicity, let's say 40 and below, let's say older leaders, 50 plus. You know, obviously, there's kind of hey. a cushion in the middle there. What are some yeah. common mistakes you see younger leaders make? Oh, gosh. Well, I think younger leaders
1: come in knowing I better be confident. And oftentimes the next generation is because they grew up with a smartphone, you know, and they're asking Google questions. They used to ask mom and dad. So I think sometimes they come in a little too maybe confident and cocky. And um, and and clearly we want to have young people have a voice, but they might air out some opinions when. Maybe they ought to f- find a new way to say it, maybe a more respectful way to say it. So I think, by the way, I don't think I know. Oh, I interview leaders all the time, as you do, and I'm just hearing leaders go, oh, my gosh, this person is, is weighing in and telling us we ought to do this, that, and the other. And they bring, you know, three months of experience to the table. So that would be one. I, I, I think that um, there is much that Gen Z and millennials have to offer. I think what I would encourage them to do if I was sitting down over Starbucks is to say, find a way to say it with, with great respect and a great sense of, um, you know, I'll defer to you, but I, this is a thought I've been having, you know, that sort of thing. I think that just goes over way, 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 way better.
0: Okay, now flip the page there. Yeah. What are some common mistakes you see older leaders making? I think down through history,
1: older leaders have always tended to stereotype the young. In fact, dating way back to Socrates, who said, young people today are not respectful and they're lazy. And I'm going, oh, my gosh, is this last week's newspaper? You know, sure. So thousands of years of adults, when we finally get to adulthood, we go, oh, these kids, kids today, you know. <laughs> so I would say we stereotype far too often and um, pigeonhole them into a, a type or a, a, a character. And I think we need to practice reverse mentoring. Uh, so I, I, I talk about this in the Paradoxes book. Um, Jack Welch actually made this popular way back in the 1990s. Here's the scenario: uh, a new um, a new batch of young employees were coming in right out of MIT or whatever, and then he had his you know 55, 56, 58 year old executives who, by the way, had never used a computer because computers were new in the early 90s. So the 58 year old executives were going, I don't want to use these computers, but Jack Welch said. And knew these are the future. So he coupled up a 58-year-old with a 22-year-old, and they both mentored each other. So the older seasoned veteran said, let me show you how this company works and share with you how to, how to get ahead here, which was wonderful. But then that older veteran would listen as the 22-year-old would say, well, let, let me tell you how to use a computer here, you know, that, that sort of thing. So dignity was given to both parties, respect. And you almost always found common commonalities in your stories as you shared them. It was just a brilliant move. And I, we, we do that here now at Growing Leaders. And it's been so, so helpful for the boomers
0: and the Gen Zers that are on our team. I'll just say that. that, Awesome. That way. Awesome. Well, Tim, uh, last few questions. We're going to do a lightning round. Got to put you on your toes just a little bit. Okay. Um, All right. And so kind of, you know, or maybe on your heels, actually, uh, just a little bit yeah. here. Uh, a couple of thoughts. What's one leadership book you've read that you'd recommend to anyone? Oh, gosh, I read one. I read a few books every year. One of the books I read every year is a
1: book called Leadership and Self-Deception. Uh, leadership and Self-Deception. It's written by the Arbiter Institute. It's a group of psychologists. It's a parable, and I don't usually like, you know, books that are parables as much, but this one, It just hit me between the eyes. And so leadership and self-deception, it's all about being aware of who you are and how selfish you are. I
0: just get, yeah, I get convicted every time I read it. What is one leadership failure you've had that you're so grateful for?
1: Oh my goodness. I would say it was probably starting Growing Leaders And probably experiencing some rookie smarts and making mistakes there that that I look back now and say, oh, thank God I didn't know what I was doing. You know, that sort of thing. So um, at first, uh, I started growing leaders as a nonprofit. And people said, oh, you should make this a for-profit. This should be a for-profit. And maybe they were right. Who knows? But um, the nonprofit world was the one I knew and the one I still know. I know we have partnered with significant organizations. Ohio State University, uh, Home Depot, uh, Chick-fil-A, and others. Probably because, at least partially because we're a nonprofit and they see the heart that we have is as big as this strategy we have, you know, that that we're really not in it just to make a buck. We're really trying to add value to other people. So I don't know if that's a great illustration, but that's the first one that comes to my mind that that would be boy, some people would say that was a mistake, but I actually think it launched
0: us forward much more rapidly with trust and trusted partners. Describe your ideal meal and who's sitting across the table.
1: Oh, oh boy.
0: Well, I, I boy, people are going
1: to think I'm cheesy. It would be my wife. I adore her. We've been married 40 years this last summer. Ooh. Um, I, I want to be with her. Um, I just like to be, I like her. I really like her. I love her too, but I just like her. Um, So we probably be eating either Mexican food, just about anything Mexican is good for me. There it is. Or, yeah, yeah. Or I really enjoy um, her manicotti, Italian. Mm. Uh, It's really, really good. She didn't claim to be a good cook, but I think she's she's awesome. Several times a week, I'll look at her and go, thank God I married
0: Pam Elmore.
1: (laughs) I feel like she's clearly the better half of us. So that's awesome.
0: A dead leader you would love to get a meal with. Oh, gosh. Can I do two real quick? We'll give you an exception, Tim. Go for it. Okay, thank you. I appreciate
1: your your gracious forgiveness on that one. (laughs) So Abe Lincoln, I know many people say, but I know he struggled with depression, and yet he forged ahead and took the blame sometimes when he didn't need to take the blame on some moves that were made by his uh, union generals. Um, I just think he had a wisdom that was brilliant. And he took, you know, high road, long-term thinking, you know, the very things we've been talking about. He did them. My other person would be Winston Churchill, this gruff leader that was perfect during the days of World War II, but not great during peacetime. You know, he was yeah. whisked out of office two weeks after he <laughs> you know won the war. Um, I just would love to sit down and just pick his brain because he was just so... So much of an incredible communicator that could sway people to move in the direction he felt like was right. So that'd be my two.
0: A leader who's alive currently that you would love to share a meal with? Wow, that's a great question.
1: You know, the person that comes to my mind might be surprising to you. I've been wanting to sit down with Jonathan Haidt, H A I D T. He's written a number of books. He wrote the book, The Righteous Mind. Um, he's the one yeah. that came up with, uh, yeah, yeah, just brilliant. NYU ethics professor, leadership ethics professor. I think he's terribly smart, um, and uh, I would just love. In fact, I'm probably going to go up to New York and just say, could I have an hour, and I'll buy you lunch or whatever, and and just spend some time with him.
0: Awesome. Well, when you do, come back on the podcast and just share your thoughts from that hour and. Let us okay. into it as well from, from a brilliant mind. We'll hold you accountable to that, right? Is that we've okay. got a podcast right. lot for you whenever. Um, last question. Obviously, there's lots of discouraged leaders out there. There's lots of leaders either want to throw in the towel or think I'm going to do everybody a favor and just quit now. What do you tell that discouraged leader? Mm. If
1: that discouraged leader is listening right now, I would say, please know that you're not alone and that you're not weird and thinking this. You're not inferior. Uh, Last year, Fortune magazine released a cover article called The Great CEO Exodus of 2020. Dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of Fortune 500 company leaders were just quitting. And then we had the great resignation of 2021. I don't know if you saw that in Inc. magazine. 11.5 million people resigned in three months. It was just crazy. I think it's people just exhausted. Um, Here's what I would say. Be careful that the reason you're leaving is not decision fatigue. Um, I think during 2020, especially, I felt like I made a year's worth of decisions in one month. Did you feel that way too? Oh, it's like, what is going on? One day maybe. Yeah. And so I think because we had to be great innovators in that way, we just often got exhausted. And didn't maybe adapt quickly or or maybe we made a decision that wasn't great. That's happened to me. And we just got decision fatigue. I would say if if there's nothing wrong with leaving, if that indeed is the right thing to do, but make sure it's not, you know, decision fatigue or that halt principle we all know, H-A-L-T. Don't make a big decision when you're hungry, angry, lonely, or tired. That's just not a good time to make a decision. So time it right is what I guess I'm
0: I'm saying. So good, so helpful. Tim, love what you're doing. And, you know, so many similar threads in, in terms of what we're doing. Folks, his book is Eight Paradox of, Paradoxes of Great Leadership. We talk about these tensions at StayForth, 4th, and many of those are talked about throughout the book. Tim, appreciate you, your work, and your team. Keep up the great work. Thank you.